Is your faith immature? Has it become stale? Or would you say it's fresh? Or it's become stable? Today, some things to contemplate as you consider the health of your own faith. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. There are a lot of ways I can put this dilemma, this consideration. Uh, And one of the ways reminds me of trim levels on automobiles. You know how you have uh, a package and, uh, you know, the the trim either includes or doesn't include genuine wood paneling, things like that, right? And so I remember the wood paneling on vehicles that really made it look special. Biffy, I don't know what word to use when I was a teenager. So, uh, and, and especially wood panel siding when I was a teenager. And then uh, on the shifter knob, sometimes they would have a real wood shifting knob. And, you know, on the good side, you would think to say if you had genuine wood, like real wood. And, and I know even the wood paneling on the sides of station wagons and things like that weren't real after long. I'll talk about that in a moment. But there was a period when they had real wood, and that wasn't necessarily a good thing. But it was cool, for sure. And the idea on the good side of having genuine wood was that it was genuine. You know, it's warm and, and and connected to the land and everything about it. It's just very appealing. Oh, except what's on the bad side, which is that eventually it dries and splits and splinters, and it doesn't last, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't expand and contract at the same rate as metal or glue or plastic. And so, you know, it just, it doesn't last uh, as long as you might like for it to, even if you really take care of it. And if you take care of it, it's still magnificent. I get it. But it's, it's a lot of trouble. And then on the plastic side, you know, you would replace it with things that were, and I say plastic, you know, vinyl, whatever it is, some kind of liner uh, you you replaced it with something that looked like wood. It had wood grain and things like that. And on the good side of those things, they lasted. I mean, on the bad side of the good side of that, what lasted wasn't real to begin with. And so you're kind of wondering, why did they make this look like it has a walnut grain when it's clearly a piece of plastic wrapped around another piece of plastic? Uh, what's going on with how fake can a person be, right? It's very... It's very difficult to make it last. I mean, to to make it either both real and lasting. It's something like that. And so let me give a different one. Vacations for me are a lot like this. My experience on vacations. And I think everybody does this in one way or another because I hear it so frequently. So for, and, and, and it's always, you know, you find some miraculous location. You have, you, you see some event, something that transpires that's, life-altering, you have an experience that changes everything for you, 
and it's overwhelmingly positive. Uh, for me, I, I was skiing. When I was 24 years old, I started pastoring church. That church went on ski trips. I went on a ski, tri- ski trip. It's like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. I can't believe it. Now, to be fair, on that ski trip, we had a, the, the, the mountain had had, a, had the, day, the first day I ever skied, a 180-inch base of snow. Uh, so that's, and this was in Colorado. It was Wolf Creek, Colorado. Unbelievable. That was my first time skiing. And everybody I was skiing with said, oh, you're being spoiled. It's never like this. And they're right. I never had another another ski day with that kind of snow on it. It was magnificent. And a great way to learn skiing, by the way, in deep powder. It was just so fun. Anyway, so I had a, a, an overwhelmingly positive experience, and a lot of people did. And we went back and did it over and over again. And there, and there are a couple of options for people who have a really positive experience like that. So one is to repeat it every year. Oh, we're going to come back to this place every year. This is so unbelievable. We have to encounter it regularly. Maybe we'll come back five times a year. Or well, we're going to buy a condo in this place, and we're going to come back repeatedly so that we can take advantage of this glorious new thing that we've discovered, you know, whatever it is. And so vacations become repeated vacations and something you want to experience over and over again. Uh, uh, the other option for people who do that is that they know it's not going to be the same next year as it was this year. And for me, it never was, even though it was great. I loved it. And I loved it for 25 years after that and more. Uh, I, it's still, for a lot of people, it is instead the desire to seek out a new and different experience every year. So that was so phenomenal. Wow, where are we going to find the next one? Well, maybe it's going to be deep sea diving, or we're going to ski dive out of a, an airplane, or we're going to jump bungee cords. or you know, Not you jump over the bungee cord, but you know what I mean. It's so all bungee jumping, you know what I'm talking about. So they seek out a new experience every year, trying to find something as remote and different. So, the, you know, the location that you went, like the vacation you went, we're going to find some, somewhere as, as fantastic as this location or something as interesting and challenging as the event, or something as moving and consequential as the experience that they had in that vacation. Either way, eventually, you realize, and this is either way, either you're going back to the same place every year, or you're seeking out a new adventure every single year for your vacation. Either way, eventually, you realize the thrill is gone, or at least that it's not the same as it was before. And that plays out in more ordinary parts of life as well. For instance, for me in academics, uh, when I was approaching PhD study, I realized as, as I looked at most brochures for PhD studies, that I would be miserable. I might as well be thrown into a deep abyss to have to study something that was so narrow that you would only be looking at that one thing for five years and becoming the expert. I was just, I might as well just die now. And so I wanted something that was interdisciplinary, something that would allow me to study across a breadth of disciplines because I love studying new things and seeing how they shed new light on the old things that I've studied and transform things and so on. And that's, I like doing integrative and synthetic things and so on. That's why I did a humanities program that was largely interdisciplinary, philosophy and history and cultural history and all of those elements brought together to give an understanding of, of what cultural history is about. For me, that's the way to go at it. Specialists are the opposite. They're the ones who are going to go back every year to that same spot because it's so fascinating. Why wouldn't you want to dive in exactly here every single time and learn even more detail about what's going on 
in that one place. You get the idea. So whether it's you take the mile wide, inch deep, or mile deep, inch wide approach, or if you take the same vacation spot every year, or we're going to go find a new adventure every year kind of approach, the idea is you found something fresh and invigorating and new and life-altering, and you have to figure out some way to maintain what you achieved in that moment. And that's what happens with faith. Uh, we, and, and all, you know, this happens to everybody in some way. And, and the question that, that follows it is the one I was asking at the beginning. You know, you want your faith to be stable. You want to be able to come back every year and revisit it. And, and I don't mean every year. I'm using that as the vacation analogy. I'm not saying once a year you have faith, you know, Easter Christians kind of thing. But I mean... Literally, you want to be able to come back to it and know that it's still the same thing. So you'd like for it to be stable, but you also want it to be fresh. You don't want it to get worn out and, and to become something that's not valuable to you. And the, the reality is, it is it's a real challenge to maintain that. And so the question becomes how to prevent our genuine faith from becoming plastic. But there are a lot, there's a lot I mean by plastic because there are some really great things about being plastic. Remember, the, the ability for it to endure and to conform to things and so on like that. And so the, it, it, we did a previous episode a long time ago that pitted authenticity in our faith against duty that comes from faith. We spent a whole episode talking about how those two things fit together. This is not that. This is, this is a different challenge. This topic puts novelty and freshness, the newness of faith, and the energy and vitality and enthusiasm that comes with that against the repetition and stability that comes with a more mature faith that's been had for a while. And, and, and even in just talking about it, I should give a, a disclosure here to say I'm definitely a repetition type of guy. You know, I'm, I'm a guy that likes stability. I want things to be the same day after day, week after week, year after year. I, I am, and I've, I, I've demonstrated this. I mean, in the, in the, when I was pastoring, I pastored the same church for 17 years and loved knowing where I was going to go to the office and how I was going to go to work and having a hospital that was the standard place where our church members went and I served them there and so on. I loved all of that, and then when that changed after 17 years, it felt like a dramatic jump for me. Wow, what kind of immaturity do I have that I'm changing jobs after only 17 years, you know? And then I came to work at Criswell College, where I've been for 18 years. And I'm, I love the fact that I know where my office is, that I have a bike path I can take, and now I've developed... After 18 years, not just one bike path, but two. I've got two different routes I'll take, although I don't change very often. The point is, I, I favor stability. I'm just admitting that. For me, that's a priority, and I, I don't see that as a problem. And the idea in that is that, I mean, it's the same. I, by the way, I come by that honestly. My dad was the same way. When we went on vacations, remember he died about a year ago. When we went on vacations, not that you would remember that, but I'm reminding you now. Uh, he, you know, every time we went on a vacation, we, we, if we, we, first of all, we took the same roads, we followed the same roads, and along the same roads are the same restaurants, so obviously you're going to eat at the same restaurants, and you're going to get the same food at the same restaurants, and you're going to do that because you had a good time doing it last time, and you want to experience that again. I realized how much of a rut I tend to get into when I realized that we were outlasting the places we loved to revisit. Oh, well, that place shut down about 10 years ago. 
oh, you got to be kidding. They're not even open anymore. And they were, they've been gone that long. It had become a regular routine for us. So in this question, how do we prevent our genuine faith from becoming sort of plastic? What I really mean to pose is the dilemma that I was describing earlier between something that's fresh on one hand, <clears throat> but then something that's stable on the other hand. And that dilemma I'm posing toward our faith in the way we practice it. Not just that we believe something, that's easy, that we believe something and that it transforms the way we live and how we practice in our lives the things that are most important to us. That's what I'm talking about. And so on the one hand, there is in this dilemma the idea that it could be sporadic but very sincere. Uh, that is more like this, that it would be novel, so it's brand new, and it's something you're encountering that's powerful, and therefore it's transformative. So I experienced this when I was young in my faith. I, I, I mean, I became a believer at the age of nine, but my, my faith really languished for seven years until I was 16 and got involved with a different group of believers who had an enthusiasm that was different. We've talked about it before can listen in different episodes and hear that. Even the very first episode I think we did on uh, centered, on whether we were centered, how you center your faith. Um, anyway, the, the point is that I, I in, in my novel faith, in that renewal of my faith, experienced this in a way regarding prayer. And I'll use prayer as the example of this case. We could use a lot of different examples. But in my prayer, I remember taking a small group of disciples that I had in Waco. I was you know, pretty uh, energetic about trying to get people to follow and listen to the Word and uh, try to share the Word with them and things like that. And we were trying to do some things together. And so I got a, a little group, probably about a dozen uh, of the people who attended a Bible study that I did down there on a regular basis when I was a student at Baylor, and I would go up to TSTI and, and sort of speak or preach. Now it's TSTC. And uh, we got a bunch of them together at night, late. <clears throat> and I, I drove them out to this place somewhere in McLennan County, don't remember. And I don't remember why it was that place we picked. But I, we prayed for, uh, we just got sat down in a little circle under a night sky and, you know, in the dark, nobody else around. And just prayed, uh, prayed for ourselves, prayed for the community, prayed for the Word to be powerful, all that kind of stuff that you do. And, and as we prayed, it was just overwhelming. I mean, the, the whole group was overwhelmed in the time of prayer that we had. And I don't know how long we prayed. I don't know how far it went. I just remember when it was done thinking, wow, if we could do this every day, it would be the greatest thing ever, wouldn't it? I mean, this is just, this is just, this, this is the thing that makes you realize why you're alive and, and why things happen in life that are worthwhile. As, you know, so that's on one side. And that's, that kind of, when I think about believers who never have experienced the kind of freshness that comes with an encounter with God, I am, I am saddened in some ways, and I, I don't mean that as in, they need what I had. I just mean it in, in the, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to experience Christianity without that encounter with, with God, that legitimate, straight-up encounter with the transcendent. At some point, that conviction of awareness that there's this, this magnificence that you are humbled before, that's transforming your life, is what gives traction to all the details and lessons that we learn about our Christianity. 
And so that, on that, but, but, you know, that doesn't happen every day, and it's not something that's going to happen every day. But then as I get older, so on that one, I said in the negative side, it's sort of sporadic but sincere. On the negative side, on the opposite, I would say it would be constant but calloused, you know? So you do it regularly, but it just doesn't mean anything to you anymore. You know, but it's not really constant and calloused on a more accurate level and obviously more positive level. I'd say it's mature and consistent, you know? And, and this is the thing that, uh, and I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, I took that, sa- during that same time when prayer was still just that invigorating and that refreshing and encountering with God, you know, or miraculous in the nature of its encounter with God, uh, miraculous, sen- you know, in sensation, that is. It, I, I would take nights and not, not go to bed, but instead go out, and I had all these people from around the campus uh, up in North Waco that would come to this little chapel where I would preach. I knew all their addresses because I had knocked on their doors. And so I would, I would <laughs> at night, late at night, I mean, when you're, when you're 19 years old and 20 years old, you do stupid things. And so when I was 19 or 20 years old, I would go out there, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would be walking around. I'd park my car by the chapel, and I'd go walk around that campus and kneel down behind somebody's house and pray for them, pray for them. Some of them, some of it was married, housing, some of it was single. I'd pray for them for different things that were going on in their life, whatever. Never told them, never said anything about it. And, it, you know, it, but I was so moved and so compelled by that presence of God and the power that you sense when you're in those encounters with him that I just wanted to give up some nights to do that, all right? <laughs> After a few months of doing that, one night I was kneeling out outside this one particular family's house. I remember who they were. They were Armenian. And I, and I don't mean theologically. Uh, Armenian, I guess you would say. And uh, anyway, really nice family. And uh, we stayed in contact with them even after we got up to Arlington. But I knew I was kneeling down outside their house, and I knelt down, and I thought, "Oh, that doesn't feel right." And uh, and then when I got up and walked back to the car, uh, all the way back to the chapel, I realized that I had knelt down in you know whatever their dog had left on the yard that day, and it took a little shine off the apple. I'm just gonna say it took a little shine off the apple, and it I didn't it didn't change my attitude toward prayer. It did make me think, oh, you know, maybe if it's dark, you should take a light or be aware of what you're going to be doing. But it certainly, it certainly gave a level of maturity to it where I thought to myself, oh, well, God doesn't just miraculously steer me around the yard so that I'm not a fool uh, because I'm spending time with him in prayer. I can also think about this and add some conscious anticipation or preparation for it and things like that. And I became more mature in my commitment to prayer for the people uh, who are under my care and so on. So I'm not presenting that to be about prayer, but just about faith, that faith changes over time, and not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that changes it in in some ways from being novel and transformative in the original sense to being more mature and consistent so that the transformation is different in this later sense that faith has. And so as I'm, you know, as I'm describing it, there's, there's a reason that this dilemma is always a valid dilemma, that, that it's always going to be something we have to figure out what to do with. Uh, the freshness on one side, you know, farm fresh straight to your table on the one side, but then on the other side, you got to eat it right then. And if you don't, it just rots. 
or shelf stable. You know, you put it on the shelf. Well, these are out of a can. Yeah, but I bought them three years ago and we still got them. So let's go ahead and eat them. And that's fantastic. Uh, There's an advantage to both. And the dilemma is always going to be there. One of the ways this dilemma emerges naturally and psychologically in us, I've heard called uh, the principle or law of diminishing returns. I don't, I've never studied a principle of diminishing returns as if it's some formal construct or something like that. I just heard about that when I was in, when I was a teenager, when I was not even a teenager, when I was in elementary school in the 1970s in the anti-drug campaigns that were going on at the time. And we would be shown, you know, you take, you, first, first they'll talk you into taking this, and then that won't be enough, and then they'll talk you into taking this, and that won't be enough. And eventually, you lose all your teeth and go to prison, you know, that kind of thing. Because you just have to have so much to get a minimal response to it. It was the same thing in the, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, emphasis on purity and sexual purity, the same kind of discussions that were given. And it's, you know, it's easy. So in our world, I think it's probably, it's not easier to see because you understand what I'm talking about with the drugs and the sex kind of talks that people have. But I do think it's probably more consistently seen and more powerful in our culture uh, to see this problem, this inherent psychological issue that's going on in us that makes faith and this dilemma applicable to each other uh, in the way we make the miraculous world around us mundane. And again, we've talked about this in other episodes, this part, but it, but it, but it, ha- it brings to bear this reality of our, our nature that makes even faith have to deal with this problem because it's a problem in us, not in faith, not in the world. It's just in us. So for instance, with aesthetics, we do this. You move to a mountain or a beach home or whatever your ideal situation is, and it's all violins and roses and, oh, my soul, look at the sunset. And can you even believe the glory of and pictures from every angle? And in fact, a friend of mine has a cabin. Robert Myers, a friend of mine, has a cabin on, in Colorado, and I'll go and stay in his cabin normally. I'm supposed to be there today, but I had the flu recently, so I'm here instead. Fortunately, with you. So happy to be there. Anyway, the point is, I would go to his cabin, and, you know, he's he's had it for years, and he goes up to Colorado. He's been going up there for years, and and sometimes I'm so overwhelmed by what I'm seeing when I visit there that I will take pictures of it and just be amazed, and so I'll text him a picture, and he's always very kind in his response, but there's always something like, uh, yeah, there are actually a whole bunch of those that uh, show up here every day, you know. So I took a picture of a turkey one time and sent it to him. And he said, yeah, there should be about 30 of those in the morning if you'll throw out some of the corn. And so it's like, ah, you know, you get, no matter what you do, obviously you get used to seeing it. You get used to being in that context. It's just the, it's just the nature of humanity that we're this way. Aesthetically, we're that way. Things that are beautiful become the things we expect. And, and only if they change are we going to notice anything about them again. Uh, in science, we do exactly the same thing. Forget aesthetics, just in science. No matter how much we think we can explain, the explanations beyond those things are always still a mystery. You see what I'm saying about the, the nature of the miraculous and the mundane? 
We don't understand why things happen the way they do. In science, there's no explanation for why things have to be the way they are. I know. I get it. I read the cosmology books. I read the physics books. I'm a big fan. I love the stuff. But at the end of the day, we don't know why those constants at the bottom of the physical universe are what they are. They just happen to be that. So, but... We build off of what we do see. Well, things on the earth fall at this rate of speed everywhere all the time and blah, blah, blah. And then we say, voila, law of gravity. We have explained all that there is to explain about it. And it's no longer mysterious to us that things are all drawn downward because we have a word for it. Not because we actually understand what gravity is, what this miraculous force that reaches up invisibly and grabs things at a distance and pulls them to us against their will, what kind of weird thing does that? Well, it's not weird to us at all because we experience it every day. It's just normal. But if you were anywhere else in the universe and that happened, you'd go, man, that's weird. Everything's going towards that one spot. Why? What on earth makes that so important? But have you, have you experienced it every day? Turn on a light switch for a baby? A miracle! Turn on a light switch for us? It's just no big, I mean, you understand exactly what it is. It's not a big deal. You've experienced it. There's nothing new to learn from that and so on. You get the idea. So there's that, the law of diminishing returns or principle of diminishing returns. I, I don't even know that that's a thing. What, whatever you want to call it, that's what I was told. Uh, well, that's what they called it when I was a kid growing up. But it's also just the nature of novel experience. The, 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 and novel, you know, I mean, new, new experiences, the nature of those experiences is that you have the whole experience, so you have the color of the sky, uh, you have the, the whole encounter with the senses, you know, all that, all that affects your senses, what it feels like and sounds like and what it looks like, tastes like, smells like, the, the, everything about it, the way it rumbles, everything about it. You have all of that plus a sense of discovery. Ooh, never felt, smelled, seen, tasted, heard that before. Wow. So the surprise that comes with that and the ineffability, I don't even have words to explain this. And the sense of exploration, man, I got to figure out what's behind that. What on earth would have caused that? All of those experiences are piled on top of the actual phenomenon. And, and that makes novel experience overwhelming and powerful and compelling and desirable and so on. But if you remain where everything is surprise, then it's possible that the experience will not contribute to what you're supposed to become. That is, let me, let me back up and say that again this way. When you have a, a novel experience, part of the joy of that novelty, the surprise and ineffability is added to by the joy of exploration. But the nature of exploration is that it's not going to be novel anymore. And if all we could ever do is experience the novelty, then we would never become the person who can say, oh, it's because there's a wire from that switch to the light, and we don't know why all this works, but when you connect this power source to it, it turns on the light. Cool. Now I'm more mature and I understand something about it and I can still have the experience of the light coming on, but it's not novel like it was before. So I, you know, I, I have this inherent tension between the novelty and maturity of the experience and what they mean for the way I encounter it. 
And so maturation, growing, maturing, becoming, you know, wiser and so on, more sage, uh, becomes a priority in us understanding what we're supposed to what we're supposed to do with this. And so maturation follows the things that we do with our prior experience. So the nature of novel experience was that you have the whole phenomenon plus this sense of discovery, you know, newness. When you have maturation, you have prior experience in your pocket already. So you have the whole phenomenon, but you also have knowledge. And that's not a loss. You get this is this isn't making it worse, it just makes it different. Now I'm coming at it, and I'm not going to be shocked. I'm not going to lack any words to describe what's happening, even if the only words I can say are, ooh, this is what happened back in that, that lot in Waco, remember? We, we, we encountered this before. Or investigation. Now I have a sense of where to go. Oh, you know, I, I want to pay special attention to this so that I, so that I don't, don't abuse it or so that I don't neglect it or whatever it is that I might do that wouldn't be an appropriate response to this phenomenon that's going on in my faith, whatever it is. But if you stop, if we stop learning and growing and changing, if what we do is stay at that point where we want every one of these encounters to be completely novel and have the same fresh surprise and affability and exploration that it had to begin with, if we stop learning and growing and changing, then our maturation stops becoming maturation. It just becomes stagnation. You're still doing the same thing in your faith that you were doing the day you got saved, for instance, the day you, your life was changed, or the day you decided to be serious about following Jesus. If, if that's the case, I mean, there is, like, every, every, every congregation I've ever been in celebrates the enthusiasm and strength that comes with new faith. So when people have first believed and they first encountered this reality of faith themselves, you know, they just have, they have an enthusiasm that's just undeniable. Love it. Oh, we're so happy about it. But obviously it always changes. But we shouldn't look at that and think only one of two things, either, ooh, how do we keep them young and enthused for the rest of their lives, nor should we think, how do we get them out of that enthusiasm so that they can become stale and stagnant like we are? Instead, you know, we want to escape between the horns of that dilemma. We, we want to escape to a place where our encounter, our experience of the faith can have the advantages that come with freshness, you know, fresh from farm, but also the advantages with come, that come with stability, shelf-stable, you know, that kind of idea. And so I've got, I've got two suggestions for how we can achieve that. I don't know that I'll get to both today, but I'm going to try to. The two suggestions are just completely separate. They're not mutually exclusive. I think they fit together. They work together. But it's two takes on how to escape between the horns of the original dilemma we posed, like is your faith fresh or is it stable? Well, let's see if we can find a way to keep it a little bit of both, you know, in some way. One of these escapes that I'm posing is based on structure. That is, seeing novelty and maturity in general. And when I say 
based on structure. I mean, it's just the nature of the conflict between freshness and staleness or between immaturity and maturity. So putting negatives and positives together there for a second. So based on structure, I mean, in any, in any circumstance, whether it's about faith or a new job or, you know, whatever new relationship or whatever, some, some of this would work. And that is seeing instead of novelty and maturity in enmity with each other inherently, seeing them instead in consort or dialogue uh, rather than adversarial. And, and how would that be? Well, in a healthy sense, novelty can give way, and this happens for a lot of people, I think, without, without blinking an eye. Novelty can give way not only to experience, but also to nostalgia. Uh, that is, you, you start, you, you know, for instance, some people remember a particular song uh, and this is an easy one because this is true for a lot of people. They remember a, a particular hymn or chorus or psalm or something, you know, a poetic or musical that goes with this transformative novel experience that they had. And they desire that song. When they hear that song, I've had this happen to me, that uh, things that are associated with those experiences that I had in the late 70s or the early 80s in my faith, that those come back to me when a musician chooses that song and I think performs it in a way that's respectful of my prior experiences with the song. I didn't say respectful of the song. I mean, that's between the musician and all that kind of stuff. You all figure that out. We'll, we'll have another show on aesthetics and musical aesthetics. Love the topic. That's not what I'm talking about. But I mean, they do it in a way that particularly reminds me of the way I encountered that song back in the late 70s, early 80s. And, that, in the, and in those moments, I am overwhelmed with nostalgia for that early faith that I encountered and a reminder of how valuable it was, which I think is healthy. I think that's a good thing. And when I say seeing novelty and maturity in consort and dialogue rather than as adversaries or seeing them in enmity, this is the kind of idea I have in mind. Now, it, 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 this is a real problem because if I do that, if I encounter that musical piece, for instance, and I think, oh, man, that was so refreshing in my faith. I'm going all the way back and thinking, oh, I, I've got to remember this and that, and those things need to be a part of how I grow in my faith and so on. In an unhealthy sense, what I can think is, oh, I need him to do that song again. So I need you to do that song every week so that I can renew my faith, you know, something like that. And, and, and as silly as that sounds, people do it all the time. People make requests like that all the time. In an unhealthy sense, what's happening is nostalgia gives way to stagnation. I need to get back in that old pool, a pool that doesn't exist anymore. It's not 1979. I'm not 16 years old. And I don't need the same things that I needed then. I do need some of the things that I found then, and I need to remember them. But I don't need to swim in that pool for the rest of my life. That's stagnation. So nostalgia, yeah, good. This can be a good thing to, to, to maintain in our faith. But stagnation, problem. We'll come back to more on how to keep from drifting into that stagnation in a minute. I, you know, here's, here's an example of encountering this outside of faith, just to say structurally why this is the case. Astrophotography, the, the little hobby that I've taken up, you know, super complicated, takes forever in my, well, I mean, for some people, maybe it doesn't take this long, but for me, it's taken forever 
to get somewhat good at it. And I can take some good pictures now, some decent pictures. But it's a, it's a lot of work. But it means I have spent hours under a night sky and under a day sky looking at the sun, not staring at it with open eye. No, I use filters and all that kind of stuff. The point is, I have spent hours and hours, and who knows cumulatively how much time sp- spent looking at the details of the color even of the blue sky, so that I can tell how clear, how transparent the sky is going to be that night. Because you can tell by the different colors that are in the daytime sky what it's probably going to look like that night if things don't change and so on. I have become so, I have begun to notice colors, not just in the daytime sky, but at sunset and sunrise and at night that I had grown for decades to ignore. And they're colors that are available on a daily basis waiting to be admired. I look now at, at sunset skies and I'm stunned in my home, in my hometown, Dallas. I'm stunned at the fire in the sky sometimes, or the salmon pinks in the sky at times, or the gradation from oranges to pinks to purples to blues, all in the same sky, or watching clouds lined in the rainbow of colors and so on. Things that are there every day, and I just didn't pay attention to. And Even when those things aren't available, those colors, just noticing then in the clouds, the undulations or turbulence or vortices or calm or the showers that come from them when I was ignoring them. Before, it's stunning to me how many things in the sky I had just stopped paying attention to because I, you know, was busy growing. I'd grown tired of it. I didn't need to pay attention to it and so on. What a shame. One way, maybe the way, to prevent nostalgia from becoming stagnation, and this one comes back to our faith, even though this is a structural response. It does come back to our faith, and, and, and this does apply to things that are outside of the faith as well. It's why we make non-religious things issues of faith sometimes. One way to prevent nostalgia from becoming stagnation is to sacralize it, to sacralize nostalgia. That is to make it a process of ritual, a process that is religious. So to create a way to memorialize the purpose or gravity of original experiences, novel experiences, each time we revisit them. So liturgy does that, for instance. Uh, liturgy in location, that we take certain places. And look, we know there's no, there, there's no place on earth where God doesn't dwell. There's nowhere we can go where he's more present or less present. There are places we go where we pay more attention to his presence or we pay less attention to his presence. But that's what this is about, our encounter with those experiences, with those realities. And so we can, we can make a liturgy out of location. We can make something sacred out of location. So we do it with our worship spaces. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of the churches that I preach at, I go from church to church largely now, even though I'm a member at Lake Highlands Baptist Church in Dallas, and I love being there, absolutely love the church. 
the, 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 the worship spaces that I go to when I'm preaching from one church to the next very often are gymnasiums. And so they're tearing down the chairs when we get done and playing volleyball or basketball or whatever. And it's, it's fantastic. And God doesn't even seem to be angry about it because the space isn't made sacred by the fact that it happens to be the location where some people have expressed their faith before. It's made sacred by that group of people saying, oh, you know what? On Sundays, we use this space as worship. And so we remember when we come into the space to treat it differently. And so we recognize that I, it's, for some people, it's the way they dress or whether they can wear a hat or not. And for other people, it's how loud they talk or don't. Uh, for other people, it's whether there's music in the background. For others, it's an anticipation and silence. For others, it's candles or special lighting or whatever it is. But we make it, instead of just a gymnasium or gymnatorium, a sanctuary, a place to be sacred. We did the same thing with an altar. We don't need a specific place to pray. Neither did God with Jacob. And yet, Bethel. Uh, so there are, you know, the house of God, you get the idea. There are places where we recognize that a place is special to our memory of something novel that happened there. Ooh, I established my covenant here. The place where we had our conversion is special to us. The place where we were baptized, uh, the place where we renewed our commitment or our calling. For some, the place where they proposed or uh, the place where they celebrated a certain anniversary or whatever, or the place of death, which a lot of, uh, in a lot of cases, the place where our loved ones die has become sacred in a very different way uh, because it's become almost universally the hospital or under hospice care at home. And in those, one of those places, we have to sacralize that space in some way. And so uh, when my dad was dying about a year ago and we were going through that process, we did see, and I was very grateful for the respectful way that the hospital, <laughs> well, slightly fresher to me than I thought, recognized the gravity of that transition and uh, had a special ceremony on the way out of the hospital because he was a veteran when he left the hospital. And so sometimes location is the way our liturgy allows us to sacralize our memories of places that have been special to us. A sacred calendar does the same thing for period that a sanctuary, for instance, does for location. So, uh, you know, if you go through the Catholic calendar, which I don't, I'm, I'm a Baptist, but, you know, it's a, it's a good reminder of how these calendars work. You know, you have a, a first Sunday of Advent, which I hear people talking about more now than I used to in the past. So November 27th this year was the first Sunday of Advent. And then we're going to have in the sacred calendar the, the, the special event of Ash Wednesday, February 22nd, and Easter Sunday, April 9th, and then the Ascension, May 18th, and then Pentecost Sunday, May 28th, and then for Catholics, not, again, I'm not, I'm just using their calendar, the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ, which is that memorial that has to do with the Eucharist, the communion, on June 11th. By the way, even the way that calendar is organized, that everything is from December to June, not vice versa, not June to December, not through the summer, not fall, but those winter and spring months are the months that the greatest sacred events take place is a part of what we say about the way we observe the world around us and live in it as people of faith. 
also they're not just the the periodic annual reminders on a calendar. Hey, go back and remember that Jesus was born. Go back and remember that Jesus died. Go back and remember that he rose from the dead and so on. Not just those, but on a daily basis or a weekly basis, personal prayer and reading or family prayer and reading or times of confession in your own heart before God or worship. Literally every week, just getting together with other believers and having a time of worship or the communion that you take with other believers, all of those ritualistic practices, all of those daily reminders or weekly or annual reminders of who we are, are one way for us to keep an original, fresh, novel faith strong and transformative and powerful even as it grows into something that's more mature. There is a stronger and even more important element for us to add to this conversation. I won't do it today. We'll add it again, but it's on content instead of structure, where I'm saying we should we should see them in consort in the structure. I am saying based on what Christianity itself actually teaches is the core of its most important elements, Uh, us knowing that we are rooted in love and mercy out of our faith gives us a way to be transformed in an ongoing path that doesn't allow the fact that our faith is no longer juvenile and novel to distract from the power that it has to compel us forward to where the Lord wants us to be. And we'll come back to talk about that one in another episode. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.